The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. We're fast approaching the end of our sermon series that we started on our second Sunday. Uh, It's entitled Christ Over Everything, and we've been walking through this letter from the Apostle Paul to a small church in Colossae. Today we're going to look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. This is the last in a series of instructions that arise from the magnificent work that Jesus accomplished in saving us. These verses give us direction regarding a question we all face every day, whether we're aware of it or not. How should believers live among those who are not believers? God has not saved us and left us to wait on him without providing us with any guidance. So let's read Colossians 4 verses 5 to 6 and pay attention to what God says to us in his holy word. Colossians 4, 5 to 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word, we need the help of your spirit. Uh, Lord, it's impossible for me to do the work that needs to be done, which is for your word to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. Uh, So we pray that you would work among us by your spirit, that you would speak clearly, Lord, uh, so that we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Some foods have a distinct flavor. Over the, the past couple of years, I've had some wonderful culinary experiences, and many of them have been shared with the Taylors and Campbells, with with Sheldon and Sean and their families. So we spent some time in Louisville, Kentucky during our pastoral training, and five minutes drive from where we lived was a place called Martin's Barbecue Joint. Martin specializes in what they call whole hog barbecue. So basically they take a whole hog each day and they put it over their pit and it's coal and hickory wood and they smoke that thing not for that day but for the next day so that by the time you get this food it's been smoked for about 20 hours so if you're not a fan of pork though they also do beef and chicken just throwing that in for those of you who aren't enjoying this moment as much as I am now when you walk into Martin's the whole place is smoky you basically accept that if you're going there you're gonna go back home smelling like you went to Martin's everyone will know oh you went to Martin's did you If you have that pork, it's crispy on the outside, but it's tender, it's falling apart. And the flavors fill your mouth, the smokiness just fills your mouth. And even if you're not trying to eat with your fingers, what you're gonna find is that when you go home, I would go home and I would wash my hands several times and hours later, my fingers were still smelling like that barbecue. So why am I cruelly describing that kind of food right now at the beginning of a sermon, knowing that I have you here for a while and you'd have no access to anything like that? Well, in this passage, Paul is instructing the Colossian believers that their lives ought to have a distinct flavor, which should be experienced by the world around them. Just like the flavor of that meat was unmistakable because it was changed by those hours of being smoked, so the way these Christians lived and spoke should be marked 
by their relationship with Jesus, marked by his wisdom and his grace. And if we, like them, know Jesus, have experienced his grace, and are maturing in him, then our lives ought to be marked by him in these same distinctive ways. So the big idea here is this. The flavor of our lives and words experienced by the world around us ought to be marked by the wisdom and grace of our Savior. Let me say that for you again. The flavor of our lives and words experienced by the world around us ought to be marked by the wisdom and grace of our Savior. We are called to intentionality in the way we conduct our lives and our conversations as we live among people who do not share our faith in Jesus. To a distinctiveness that comes from Jesus and points to Jesus. What we have here then are two mandates. Live in ways marked by Christ's wisdom and speak in ways marked by Christ's grace. So let's unfold those starting with the first one. Live in ways marked by Christ's wisdom. As we've made our way through this letter, the idea of walking has been a recurring theme. What it's speaking of is the way we live our lives, the way we conduct ourselves. So we saw in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul was praying for these Colossian believers to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Christ reigns over our entire lives. So everything about the way we conduct ourselves, the whole pattern of our lives, should please him. And that includes the way we live in relationships with those who are not believers. And in this respect, our lives should be marked by wisdom. Again, we can trace this thread of wisdom throughout the letter. In Colossians, wisdom is the foundation of a life that is pleasing to God. It governs Paul's approach to discipling others. It is a treasure hidden in Christ, and it sets the tactful tone for how we should teach and correct each other as believers in the local church. Now, doesn't that sound important? Doesn't that sound like a good thing? Yet, wisdom is not highly esteemed. The world around us is determined to live life on their own terms and to keep on making those new mistakes. And even among believers, over the years, as I've had many conversations, I've found that there are many who are suspicious of wisdom. Now, it is wise to be wary of everything that people call wisdom. I've heard other believers present ways of living as wise, which really are expressions of their fears or of not fearing God. It takes wisdom to recognize real wisdom. But it's tremendously unwise in the light of all that the Bible says about wisdom not to have this as an operational category in our lives. I found that this suspicious posture uh, is, is, is especially prevalent among those who are very passionate about some endeavor or cause. In some situations when I've sought to gently come alongside someone uh, they've resisted my questions about the wisdom of their actions and rejected my counsel and the counsel of other people, unwilling to consider that their zeal might be misdirected. Ray Ortland, in his commentary on the book of Proverbs, warns, If we have love, but not wisdom, we will harm people with the best intentions. If we have courage, but not wisdom, we will blunder boldly. If we have truth, but not wisdom, we will make the gospel ugly to other people. If we have technology but not wisdom, we will use the best communications ever invented to broadcast stupidity. So take that thought from Ortland and link it right back to the verse we're considering here in Colossians 4 verse 5. 
If the way we live among unbelievers isn't marked by wisdom, we will do much damage to others and to the cause of the gospel, and we will do it with the best possible intentions. So what is wisdom? Here's a short definition that Ortland provides. Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. The book of Proverbs teaches us to seek wisdom and that the Lord gives wisdom. But God doesn't just give instructions. He gives us his son. Wisdom is a person. His name is Jesus. And we gain wisdom by being united with him. We grow in wisdom through our relationship with Jesus. And he doesn't just teach us a new set of principles for living. He gives us new desires and new appetites. This command to walk in wisdom is a call to bring the character of Christ to bear on our relationships with those who don't know him. It's a call to live our lives in tactful, strategic, and winsome ways that display the beauty of God's grace at work in us. And for people far from God to experience that grace as it overflows to them in our compassion and our kindness and our humility and our patience and our forgiveness. It is a call to embody the gospel and to do so for the benefit of those who have not put their trust in Jesus. In one sense, you can think of godly instructions, uh, instructions for godly living like a musical score. Now, you can take a musical score and play the right notes, but that doesn't mean that anyone is going to enjoy the song. Wisdom is the skill to play it beautifully, with the right timing, with the right accents to bring out the nuances of the composition. That's why I think Jeff Vanderstelt, in his book Gospel Fluency, hits the nail on the head when he says, Wisdom is knowledge applied so that we do the right thing at the right time with the right motive in the right way. The book of Proverbs is, is, a, is a fascinating composition. One of the things it does is it points out the insufficiency of good intentions. So let me, let me walk you through a couple of Proverbs here. This is Proverbs 27:14, and this is a warning it gives. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. Proverbs 25.20 points out, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. So wisdom looks like living with sensitivity to matters of timing and the state of the hearts of those around us so that we position the blessings of the gospel to be received rather than rejected. Now, none of this wise living is an attempt to make the world accept us. Jesus was the embodiment of wisdom, and the world emphatically rejected him. And he promises us the same. But what wisdom will do is to ensure, to a significant extent, that the world rejects us for the right reason. Because they're offended by the gospel rather than our folly, or our insensitivity, or our arrogance. Look back at Colossians 4, verse 5. Now, that simply expressed idea, outsiders, is at odds with the pluralistic society that we live in. Or Western pluralism will grant you your private belief in Jesus, and will be very happy for you if it helps you, but would be horrified at the thought that people whose faith isn't in Jesus are outside of anything that matters in an ultimate sense. But that's not what the gospel says. In Ephesians 2, 12 to 13, we are called to remember that you, that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It serves us to remember as we interact with people on a daily basis that others are still outside, still far off, still alienated from God. And the consequences of remaining outside will be serious and eternal. It serves us to remember while we are breathing the philosophical air around us that if there are no outsiders, if we were never outsiders, then Jesus' life and death were wasted. If there are no outsiders, while we can still learn to live well with others around us, wise living, which has as its goal the display of Jesus and his grace and seeks to make the best use of time in the pursuit of that goal, and gracious speech, which offers Jesus as the savior that people need, is simply arrogant and anything but beautiful. This command that we've been considering means that we can't be strangers to outsiders. Or to put it positively, we're being called to build and invest in relationships with unbelievers. It probably would be stretching the original language, but accurately understanding the text to point out that the direction we're being sent in is towards outsiders and not away from them. Yet many of us who have been in church for a long time have been led away from unbelievers, both by pattern and precept. Church activities can dominate so much of our lives that we have little time or energy to share our lives with anyone outside of those circles. And I'm afraid that we've largely misunderstood or placed so much emphasis on biblical warnings about how we relate to the world that we've withdrawn to whatever we believe to be a safe distance. Now, for sure, the scriptures are concerned with the way unbelievers can influence us. As we saw some, some many weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 1, but the biblical prescription is not a general retreat, but the passionate pursuit of our delight in Christ. So here in Colossians, the way to growth, security, and satisfaction is to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the verse we memorized together in Colossians 2, 6-7. If we've been paying attention to how Jesus lived his life, it won't surprise us that following him leads us into the lives of those who need to discover his grace. This command highlights one important aspect of wise living. Look at the second part of verse 5. Making the best use of the time. Wisdom understands the brevity and unpredictability of our lives and the lives of those who don't know Jesus. And the wise response to that knowledge is to be frugal, but not frantic. We need to learn to be deliberate and strategic. Maury Harris comments that Christians are to seize eagerly and use wisely every opportunity afforded to them by time to promote the kingdom of God. For some of us, one of the first ways we can begin to respond to this command uh, is to make better use of our time by investing in getting to know outsiders who are right outside of our lives. That might be your immediate neighbors or family members that you're close to but have superficial relationships with. Or it might be your co-workers that you have the opportunity to get to know. So how can you be strategic in who you choose to have lunch with or to pursue a hobby with or to exercise with? A friend of mine had shared with me a few years ago that he chose to play football with a particular bunch of guys. This is a friend of mine who pastors in the States, and he has a bunch of 
Irish Americans living around him. And he was just like, you know what, I'm going to play football with these guys. So he's getting beat up. He's, he's, he's an American. He's not very good at this. You know, but he, he's in the game and he's building relationships. I'm sorry. No Americans? I'm sorry. He wouldn't mind that. He, I know him well. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's doing that intentionally to build relationships so that he's friends with people who need Jesus. So it might look like getting to the, know, know the names of people that you frequent regularly. Places where you buy lunch or shop and taking the time to ask them a few questions. You know, it might surprise you how much of a difference genuine interest expressed through questions can make in a relationship. I'm convinced that a part of walking in wisdom towards outsiders, a part of making the best use of the time, is managing our digital entanglements. Now, the technology that we carry around with us is truly amazing. It's also designed to be addictive. So we're, it's like we're carrying quicksand in our pockets. And if we're not careful, it just sucks us in. It can connect us to people who are far away from us, but alienate us from those who are right around us. So how are you doing at giving attention to people when you are with them physically? Are you tethered to your phone and missing out on the opportunity for meaningful embodied conversations where you can communicate through attentively listening to others, through eye contact, and learn not just to take in people's words, but to see their body language, to see their affect? Sometimes when a friend walks into the room and I look up and I give them my attention, I know something is not right. Because this is my friend and something is not looking right. But if we're down here and kind of, you know, we miss a lot of those cues. You know, people can send any emoji they want at any time, but we often can't hide how our hearts show on our faces. So we're being called here to be deliberate in the way we live our lives in close proximity to outsiders so that they will have the opportunity to witness and to experience the grace of God on our lives and, by God's grace, put their trust in the one who's blessing us. This is what it means to live in ways marked by Christ's wisdom. And Proverbs 11.30 sums it up wonderfully. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Paul goes on from here to focus his attention on how we speak as we live among those who are not believers. We are to speak in ways that are marked by Christ's grace. So that's the second point. So look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's a connection here between Paul's speech and ours. A few verses back in verse 4, Paul was asking these believers to pray for him, that he would have clarity uh, as he declares the gospel. The message, the good news, that is, that God restores us to right relationship with himself through faith in Jesus. Now he teaches these believers that their speech should be full of grace. There's nothing more gracious than the gospel. Most of these Colossian believers were not called to a career in gospel proclamation, and that's true for the vast majority of you. But we are all called to share the good news of Jesus with others. And as Mark Maynell observes, if the message is one of grace, then the way it is communicated must be characterized by graciousness. While Paul definitely has gospel proclamation in view here, he's not speaking to that exclusively, as if we should be concerned with speaking graciously only when we're talking about Jesus. That's actually one surefire way to, in, to undermine all of your attempts to share Jesus with others. All of our conversation should be flavored with the grace that we have received through Jesus. So, 
Do you cuss people out because they deserve it? Yes. Amen. Con let's confess. I like you guys. You guys are... Yeah. You see, I, I was reflecting and I realized that Jesus did not treat us that way. Jesus spoke words of invitations to us when we were his enemies. He spoke words of forgiveness to us, undeserving sinners. Do we talk down to people who are below us in their station in life or social standing? There was nobody who was more important than Jesus. Yet the way he spoke to others, the way he spoke to outcasts, to beggars, to children, to thieves, made them feel how loved and important they were. As believers, we are supposed to be streams of refreshment in a parched world. We interact with a lot of people who may have very few life-giving conversations on a daily basis. Security guards and bagpackers at the supermarket and customer service reps and receptionists and restaurant workers. As I've learned over the years to bless people with my speech as I do business day to day, to acknowledge their presence and to ask how they're doing and to display love and to take opportunities to get to know them, I found that it's clear that I leave them in a better state than I found them in. The blessing that I've become to them starts to show on their faces when they see me again and they greet me. That's the effect that we're called to have on the world around us. And living this way opens doors for gospel opportunity. Paul says that our speech should be seasoned with salt. Picking up on language that Jesus used in Matthew 5 when he taught his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Now there are a lot of overtones here. If your speech is seasoned with salt, then that saltiness is going to come out in everything you say, just like every bite of well-seasoned food. Such speech is life-preserving and flavor-enhancing. But one of the dominant ideas here is that our speech should be interesting and even witty. Christians are not supposed to be boring people to talk to. That's because we have every reason to be interested in those around us. God is interested in them. And we see the world through a gospel lens which is insightful and realistic and hopeful. And if, as we learned, everything exists for Jesus, then we can learn to take an interest in the things that others are interested in. And when we talk about Jesus, it shouldn't sound like we scooped something out of a can that we had sitting on a shelf for several years and just kind of plopped it on a plate and put it in front of people. It really should come across like a good home-cooked meal. But that will only be true if day after day our appetite for Jesus is being satisfied as we discover new delights in him. Some of how Paul teaches in Ephesians helps us to fill out the picture of how God's grace is meant to renovate our speech by telling us how we're not to talk and how we are to talk. So this is Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. A few verses later in Ephesians 5.4, Paul commands, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Our speech reveals the things that captivate and dominate us. If lust captivates us, it's going to come out in how we talk. If anger dominates our hearts, it's going to be heard in our words. But God transforms our speech by transforming our hearts. So this is not only an exercise in self-censorship. You don't need to be born again to censor yourself. But hearts and imaginations that are captivated by and filled with the grace of God will delight in the self-control that reflects Jesus and will overflow with thanksgiving that is not forced, but is natural. 
That call for thanksgiving is on repeat in the book of Colossians. We've just heard it over and over again. Uh, and there's something wonderfully gracious about someone who is constantly giving thanks for the grace of God in their lives. Weird perhaps, but wonderful. No, none of this means that we never say hard things that people don't want to hear or that we never bring correction. Sometimes that is what fits the occasion. Jesus definitely did not have any reservations about rebuking or correcting people. Saying hard things is one of the ways that we can bring grace into the lives of others. Listen to Proverbs 27, 5 to 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, I, I've had to work through that verse personally because I hate conflict, so it's sometimes very hard for me to say, hey, look, I need to talk to you about that thing. And I started to realize that my reluctance to say that was not loving people. It was just protecting myself and protecting my sense of comfort. And I had to learn that, no, sometimes the gracious thing to do is to gently confront people. When we are living in the ways this passage calls us to, as, as the world around us sees and benefits from the wisdom of God, and hears the grace of God in our conversation, something is going to happen. They're going to have questions. In fact, if the way we live makes complete sense to those around us who don't trust Jesus and are not living for the hope that Jesus has given us, then we need to check ourselves. Christianity does not make sense unless it's true. So, as we are transformed by God's grace, the people whom we've invited into our lives who don't know Jesus are going to have questions. And that's going to give us opportunities to give them answers, to point them to Jesus. So, this verse is about what we call apologetics. But here it's not the stuff of lectures or debates, but the stuff of everyday life. Every Christian is an apologist, a person called to give a reasoned explanation for their trust in Jesus and the way they live in the world as a result. And notice that it says how you ought to answer each person. Speaking of Jesus is not one, one size fits all. Each person will have different questions. Some may be curious or confused by us. Others might be argumentative or hostile. But we can learn to give gracious answers in any case. Knowing how to answer each person is not just a matter of speaking though. It's first a matter of thoughtful listening and questions. Listen again to the wisdom taught in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Proverbs 18.13 If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 20 verse 5 The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. It struck me as I thought about these proverbs that Jesus embodied this wisdom while he was here on earth. And the Gospels record just snippets of conversations he had with people from different backgrounds and in different situations. I mean, of course, one of them of note is that story of Jesus' engagement with a, a woman from Samaria at, at that well, highlighted and, and recorded for us in John chapter 4. Attentive listening is, in and of itself, an act of love and opens the heart of others to listen to us when we eventually speak. Sometimes the answers we as Christians give people are superficial and they're not particularly helpful because we haven't taken the time to lovingly listen and carefully and prayerfully consider how we can serve them with our words and point them to Jesus. One of the most significant and wise Christian intellectuals from the 20th century is a man named Francis Schaeffer. 
When he was asked what he'd do if he had an hour to share the gospel with someone, his response was that he'd listen for 55 minutes, and then in the last five minutes, he'd have something meaningful to say. In my pride, I've often thought that I figure people out in no time. I just hear a few things they say, and I know what's going on in your heart. I know you. Um, hearing Schaefer's approach really humbled me, and it slowed me down a lot and taught me to listen a lot more. I want to encourage you to take this passage and to pray it this coming week and beyond. One of the benefits of memorizing verses like these is that we can pray out of them anytime we want to. And what this kind of prayer does is to shape our desires according to God's will. So it can sound like this. Father, fill me with your wisdom by filling me with Christ. Give me more of him. And cause that wisdom to shape the way I live my whole life. Help me to be deliberate in building relationships with people, with the people you put around me. Give me a heart of love for them. Help me to be aware of the opportunities you give me to bless others and to point them to Jesus. May the grace that you have shown to me in Christ overflow in the way I speak to other people each day. Help me to answer questions well and to slow down and listen long enough to hear what the real question is. Praying this way is seeking God's help in obeying Him. And when we pray according to His will, we have the confidence that He hears us and that, that, we, that we will have what we have requested. The flavor of our lives and words to the, to, to the world around us ought to be marked by the wisdom and grace of our Savior. What a privilege we have as those whom Jesus has saved to be a part of his continuing mission to reconcile others to God. We are sometimes foolish and we are always fallible. But he has opened our eyes and he's using our conduct and our conversation to open the eyes of others. As we grow in wisdom, we will increasingly be a blessing to those God has brought into our lives, to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. As we continue to learn of the fullness of the grace of God to us, undeserving sinners, our hearts will be transformed by that grace, and out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouths will speak. Do you feel overwhelmed by this mandate? Do you carry a sense of your own failure or, and a sense of frustration at many missed opportunities? Take heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Humbly confess your frustration and your weakness and your sin and ask for his help. He gives grace to the humble. He is the wisdom of God and he freely gives himself to us. Even in our missteps and outright failures, we cannot exhaust the grace of God. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. You are in him and he's working in you to transform you more and more into his image. So believe his word and prayerfully walk into this week seeking to live in ways marked by Christ's wisdom and to speak in ways marked by Christ's grace. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.com dot church.